this morning I'd like to start a series. Uh, actually, that first slide, Ethan's going to do that. The first slide, uh, as far as the, the way I view my work, here's the way I view my work. And it's from the scriptures that he here is Jesus Christ. After he ascended to heaven, it said that he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to us. And then he names as gifts these offices of serving the saints. Now, uh, we don't have the apostles uh, with us. He gave some as apostles and prophets. That's the first century. But then some as evangelists. And that is actually what I am. I'm an evangelist. I'm a preacher or a minister. Uh, often today, the word pastor is used for minister, but I'm going to go and use it more in that, in that sense there. A pastor is actually an elder, as we find in Scripture. But he gave evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. That's fundamentally what my goal is. I'd like to equip us, and starting at this age here, for the work of service. And a lot of that equipping is going to be teaching and then uh, instructing encouraging for us to apply the Word of God to our life. And that results in the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's a goal. We want to be of one mind in the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, that is, have the unity of that knowledge, to a mature man. That's the whole uh, goal is that we would be mature in Christ uh, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We want to grow up into Christ uh, from the inside out. We want to have the mind of Christ. We want to, as much as possible, think like Jesus thought. Okay, so that's, that's my goal as a minister, as an evangelist. I want to equip you and encourage you, exhort you or urge you to apply the word to your life so that the Holy Spirit, he takes that word. Someone say, well, just knowledge, what is that? Knowledge in itself isn't anything, but if we receive knowledge with a love of the truth and with an honest heart, that knowledge is used by the Holy Spirit inside us to transform us, to make major changes in our attitude so that we change from the inside out. So that's, that's going to be the goal. Uh, I'd like to begin a series in First Peter today. First Peter, to me, is one of the most positive books in the New Testament. It's just filled with rich lessons. And the amazing thing is John David started last, or he, his last lesson was in 1 Peter 1 about our being aliens. And I had never even talked to him about it, but that's my lesson today. Now, uh, I'm going to take it beyond kind of what he was talking about. But anyway, I, I thought it was just amazing that we were kind of thinking along the same lines there. Uh, I do know that he is, uh, that's one of his favorite books too. But what I really love about 1 Peter is, you know, it's in a, a setting of persecution. It's written about A.D. 64, A.D. 64. Now, something with the Roman government happened right before that. Anyone remember it? Like A.D. 63, something happened that was pretty traumatic. What did, what did Nero, the Roman emperor, do in A.D. 63? He burned Rome. He burned Rome. That was bad enough, but what did he do? He blamed it on the Christians. And so that set off this incredible persecution of the Christians. Peter is addressing that. In every chapter, he addresses the fact that we're going to be persecuted and how we are to receive that or how we're to look upon that persecution. But the main thing Peter does, I think that's so important, in, in any time, uh, we, we go through trials every day, the, the Jenkins did today, and we need to know who we are. We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to have a clear sense of identity in Jesus Christ. And that's what I love about 1 Peter. Over and over and over again, he tells us who we are in Christ. 
And he does it especially to fortify them against the, the, the persecution that was become, become just rampant with them. Okay, let's go to the next slide, uh, Ethan. We are, as John David pointed out last week, First uh, Peter 1 in verse 1. If you've got your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn over there. First Peter 1, 1. Peter, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, of those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the knowledge of God the Father. He addresses us as aliens, and I do agree with John David that he's using alien in, in two different senses. In a very literal sense, he's addressing a lot of Jewish Christians, and a lot of those Jewish Christians were scattered out in those provinces, as he talked about. And as they lived in those places, they were like foreigners, and that's the idea of an alien, a foreigner. Uh, they settled into the cities, in fact, started some pretty effective businesses, but nonetheless, it was always with a very clear sense that that's not their home. Uh, in a physical sense, especially, their mother city was what? The Jews went to Jerusalem, right? And I want us to get a very clear sense, and we talk about aliens and sojourners, they are on a pilgrimage to home. They are on a pilgrimage to home. Uh, as John David pointed out last week, we are not citizens of this earth. We're citizens of, of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. What I want us to focus on is that in this life, we're actually on a pilgrimage to heaven. That's what our whole existence is about. Not only do we have a sense that this earth is not our home, and as much as we love Missoula, it's still not really home. We're, we're foreigners here, uh, and there we are headed to heaven. But I want us in this lesson to focus on what does that pilgrimage look like? It's a pilgrimage. Now, let's uh, first of all talk about the Jews. Uh, next slide there, Ethan. Uh, with the Jews, here was a, the, they were literally sojourners, as I mentioned a while ago. Uh, they were part of the word that's used in the Greek is diaspora. Diaspora. It means the scattering, the scattering or the dispersion. And it referred to the fact that way back in 721 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel, you remember 10 northern tribes, because of their idolatry, were scattered as they were taken captive by the Assyrian king. He would capture peoples and then just scatter them throughout the empire. Okay? And then a little over 100 years later, the Jews, the southern kingdom, because of their idolatry and their unfaithfulness, God cap uh, captured them through Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, of uh, Babylonia. And he destroyed Jerusalem, and he, he scattered them. They were just dispersed everywhere. Now, in 536 B.C., 70 years later, Cyrus the Persian, point three there, Cyrus the Persian, he was a different kind of ruler. He didn't believe in scattering people. He wanted people to go home. He wanted them to be able to go home and especially build their temples and to pray to God to bless him. So Cyrus comes along and he, he allows the Jews, who are all scattered everywhere, if you want to go home, you can go home. But the thing was, there were a lot of Jews that were content where they were. They still loved Jerusalem. And they'd still be doing pilgrimages to Jerusalem. But they were fine to settle in as foreigners, as aliens in these other provinces throughout the, the uh, Roman Empire. They would make three pilgrimages. Again, an alien, a pilgrim, makes pilgrimages. That makes sense, doesn't it? And they would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem, their holy city. There'd be the Passover. All males 
12 and older, the, usually the whole family would go, were required by the law to go to Jerusalem. Some from, I know, like from Cyrene in Africa, over a thousand miles. Can you imagine? Over a thousand miles with no automobiles. That's how far they would go, three times a year at least, to Jerusalem. Uh, the P- Pentecost feast, which we read about in Acts chapter 2. That's why you have all those Jews there. They had done a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for that feast. And then the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles was the third one. And by the way, when you guys travel, do you have travel tunes? You guys ever pull up travel tunes? Okay, I think we all do. I know when uh, our kids were little, we would uh, get load up in our custom cruiser, Oldsmobile wagon, real comfortable. And we had our cassettes, remember the big cassettes? And we had uh, Abba, you know, uh, Mamma Mia, all those kind of songs. And uh, that we played those when we wanted the kids to be kind of awake and really energized and all that. And then Don Williams, we'd play him to kind of help settle them down. Then we'd play Roger Whitaker to put him to bed, to put him to sleep. And he's a British crooner, and he will put you to sleep. I'll tell you what, he's a beautiful voice, but he will put you to sleep. So we had our travel tunes, and, I mean, we had, uh, oh, my goodness, it was a 17-hour drive. So uh, they really came in handy. Well, they had their travel tunes, too. Did you know from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, what are called the Song of Ascents? Were the, they were their travel tunes. As they would journey up in pilgrimage towards Jerusalem, they would sing these psalms. Um, and they would talk about going up to the house of the Lord and how, how wonderful that was. And by the way, why would they use that word ascent? A-S-C-E-N-T. Anyone know? Why ascent? Steve? They're going up, right? They would always say, go up to Jerusalem. I mean, topographically, it was up. And so they would really go up. So they would sing songs of going up to Jerusalem, all right? So anyway, they had their travel tunes too as they would pilgrimage. Okay, next slide. However, okay, next slide here. Peter addresses all of us, not just the Jews, as aliens and pilgrims, as John Dave was pointing out. From 1 Peter 2.11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers or pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. All Christians, we are on a pilgrimage, and there are certain enemies that we must contend with, we must struggle with, and it's mostly lust. It's those illicit desires that we have, and they will destroy the soul if we allow them to pull us down. So we're on this journey as aliens, but there's going to be trouble along the way on our journey. And he's saying lust especially, watch out for lust. We're joining, this is what's exciting to me, we are joining the same pilgrimage that Abraham and other people of faith throughout the Old Testament were on. Uh, Let's take a look at Hebrews 11 and verse 8. If you have a Bible with you, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. This is the chapter dealing with, we call them heroes of faith. Heroes of faith. And uh, I'd like to drop on down to verse uh, 8, where he says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. We're going to see what, uh, look, we'll look at the map a little later on. But here he is by faith, and that is God had told him to do this. So he's obeyed by going out to a place which he was going to receive for an inheritance. Anyone know who that was? Where was the place they would receive for an inheritance? It was, I left my Canaan, right, good. It was Canaan, okay? And, uh, he went out not knowing where he was going. He'd never been to where he was going to Canaan. By faith, he lived as an alien. There's our word. 
or pilgrim in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, uh, fellow heirs of the same promise. And he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That looking for is that search. That's that pilgrimage. But now what was the city? Let's drop on down to verse 13. Here Abraham and the other people of faith said, these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed they were strangers and exiles or pilgrims on this earth. For those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they'd been thinking of that country they went out from, they would have had opportunity to return. That is, you know, they came from Mesopotamia. We'll see where that is. And so when they were seeking a home, they weren't trying to go back to Mesopotamia. You, you might say, well, that was their home, but that really wasn't their home anymore. Uh, he's saying here there was a much better, much higher home than that that they were seeking. Uh, verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. That's the city. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They were on a pilgrimage not just to Canaan. It was a pilgrimage to to heaven, right? They were pilgrims. They were pilgrims headed on a pilgrimage to heaven. That's what they were seeking. That's what they were living for by faith. Not a geographical, so this next point. So it's not a geographical pilgrimage. It's not walking on earth. But it's a faith pilgrimage. We often talk about faith journey. Have you ever thought about that journey as a pilgrimage? Because that's how the Bible actually describes it. A faith journey, a faith pilgrimage. It says in here, I believe, is in a summary form, we're going to look at more in detail, what it means to be on a faith pilgrimage, both for them and, and for us. It says in Romans chapter 4, verse 20, that Abraham, back at this time, grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Grew strong. He had a lot of struggles. He had a lot of weaknesses. That's a part of the faith journey. But he grew strong. He progressed in his faith and then finally received the promise. And, of course, he is in heaven now. A faith journey, and I want to emphasize a faith progression, a moving forth, forward in our faith. All right, let's take a look at that more particularly. Let's go back to the next slide here. Uh, go ahead. You're good. Mileposts, I'm calling them, of Abraham's faith pilgrimage to heaven. And as we look at this real briefly, these are things that you're, you probably remember, but uh, think of yourself. We're, we're looking at what you know, the struggles that Abraham had in his faith pilgrimage, but see if you can relate to any of these. And that's the whole point, of course. We're not trying to just pick on Abraham here or to even uh, just use him as our model, but we want to see, so how does this actually uh, impact us, and how can we relate to what he's talking about here? So it all starts back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, where he's basically saying this. He's saying, God, I am yours. He was just, just totally taken in by God's promises and God's instructions. I'll go and do whatever you want. That's pretty much the attitude of Abraham. I'm just going to go to the next slide, Ethan. All right, here's a, a slide of the, uh, where he went from. Here's Ur the Chaldees. Uh, this is the Tigris. This is the Euphrates River, still is today. This is called what? What is this called? This land between the rivers, what is that called? You guys remember? Like I said, I'm going to drill the adults too. What's that? Okay, Fertile Triangle, but just this part here. Between the rivers, I'm, I'm 
I'm giving you a hint. Between the rivers, it's called Mesopotamia. That's what Mesopotamia means, meso between Potamia rivers. Between the rivers, that's, that's here's the fertile crescent, the fertile crescent. And he traveled the fertile crescent to the land of Canaan. He's from Ur of the Chaldees. By the way, for extra credit here, what is this territory today? What is it called today? If you were to get a map and you looked at this same, what's called Mesopotamia, what is that today? No. Iraq. Right. Good. Iraq. This is Iraq, not one of our favorite places here. Okay. So he went up here by God's command, went down into Canaan. All right. That's what he's talking about here. Now, let's take a look at the next slide, Ethan. Here's a very important point that we need to get to. In this reading in Genesis 12, God makes three promises to Abraham. He says that in your seed, and by the way, Abraham was 75 years old when he left Mesopotamia. And he told him, and his wife Sarah was barren, not able to get pregnant. But he told Abraham that through a descendant from you and Sarah, you're going to have three things happen, some wonderful things. There will be a great nation to come from, uh, from Isaac, and then on down the line, there will be a great nation that they will receive the land of Canaan. By the way, that nation would be what? Israel, right. That would be Israel. They would receive the land of Canaan, and then farther down the line, in your descendant or seed, and they're referring to Christ, all nations will be blessed. That's the gospel right there. And by the way, the rest of the Bible is a development of those three promises. The rest of the Bible are these three promises being developed and fulfilled. Okay? So those are the promises that God made to Abraham when he was 75 years old on his way to the land of Canaan. Okay? Now, let's proceed from there. So he starts off. It kind of reminds me when you, know, when you come up from the waters of baptism, don't you feel like you're on fire? Most people do. It's kind of like, God, tell me, send me anywhere, you know? I'll do anything. And God, whatever you promise me, I'll trust you completely. That's kind of how we are when we come up from the waters of baptism. But then what happens is we start hitting the trials, right? The trials in life. And then we start kind of getting a little quieter and we start wondering, ooh, uh, you know, God, uh, did I sign up for this? You know, (laughs) is this what I signed up for? And we start struggling. And we start doing what Abraham did. You know, he started off on fire for God. But now let's see and see if this isn't part of our faith journey too, some of the things he goes through. All right, so the next slide. So again, that's the, that's the start off. All right, next slide. So the next slide is here. The next milepost would be, God, I want to trust you. All right, he's already down there in Canaan. Uh, on this occasion, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing here. God, I want to trust you, but I'm afraid. So I'm just going to kind of take things into my own hands. Uh, e- even though... Others are going to be hurt. Kind of think about that. You ever find yourself thinking that way where we're doing something we know God doesn't really want us to do, but we feel like we we can't wait on God anymore, and we're just going to have to do things our own way, even though it's not going to turn out well for probably a lot of people. This is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 11 through 13, where Abraham and Sarah go into the land of Egypt because of the famine. And uh, even though at this time she's 66 years old, 66 years old, but she was a looker. She was a good-looking woman. And Abraham knew he had a really good-looking woman at his side. So he was afraid that if he went into Egypt to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh saw this really good-looking woman, that he would want her, and therefore he would kill Abraham to get her. 
So Abraham said, look, let's, let's, let's do this. Talks to Sarah. And by the way, she was his half-sister. He says, I tell you what, let's tell him that you're my sister. You're just my sister. And then, of course, <laughs> so what do you think Pharaoh was going to do? He's going to take her to be a part of this harem. And as soon as he did that, God intervened with plagues on Pharaoh. He got Pharaoh's attention and said, you can't take her. That's his wife. And so Pharaoh ended up being hurt by it. But again, it's a mess. And, and this is a, kind of our big lesson throughout this. He, in all these cases, would not wait on the Lord. And when we don't wait on the Lord and decide to take things into our own hands, we're going to make a mess of things. It's always going to happen that way. So that is the underlying lesson of all of these here. But fear here, fear. How many times does fear keep us from doing what God wants us to do? Or fear keeps us from actually trusting God in the way that we should do? Fear is a, a horrible horrible enemy. I can really appreciate the fact a lot of the, uh, the more contemporary songs today deal with fear. And I think that's a very important point. Next one now. So time goes on. Time goes on now. Genesis 15, 1 through 6. Genesis 15, 1 through 6. Uh, it says here, uh, verse 2, Abraham uh, says, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Hint, hint. <laughs> so, uh, God, you remember now, you made the promise, and have you noticed I still don't have a child? I, I still don't have one. But listen, uh, I've got an idea here. I have Eliezer. He, he was born in my household. How about him? In other words, those three promises, it, it's somehow it's just not working to, follow, to fulfill them through that descendant of mine. But I got it covered, God. I got it covered because I have a, a, a guy, a servant in my household. And uh, uh, let's let him be the one, kind of the conduit for those promises. Now, in fact, notice what happens here, because when we start doing this kind of stuff, uh, did you see what's happening in verse 3? Abraham says, since, since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Since you have given me, what is he doing? Yeah, he's blaming God. You know, the real problem here, God, is I shouldn't even have to talk about Eliezer, but because you have fallen down on your job. And doesn't that happen, though, when we don't really wait on the Lord? Somehow God's going to end up being blamed about it. He's going to end up getting the blame for it. Again, that's, a, I think, a very important lesson we can hear. So I've got another plan. So God does this. God is amazingly compassionate and patient. So God says this in verse 4. I mean, it's like he just sloughs off the fact that he's just been blamed by Abraham. God says, uh, the word of the Lord says to, to Abraham, it says, this man, Eliezer, is not going to be your heir, but one who shall come from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him aside outside and he said, now look toward the heavens, count the stars if you're able to count them. He said to them, so shall your descendants be. God just goes back and renews that promise. Look at the stars. Can you count them? That's the way your descendants are going to be. And it says in verse 6, Abraham believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So Abraham had dropped down here. God renews the promise. He comes back up here. Isn't that kind of the way our faith journey kind of goes? It's kind of like this in waves. But hopefully we're kind of doing a gradual climb. But it's kind of up and then a little bit down, then up and a little bit down. And God is a merciful God. I think he works with us. He just wants that progression that net climb, I guess we might say. Next one, Ethan, next slide. Next milepost, I love this one here. Hey, God, my wife just came up with a wonderful idea. You probably know what that one is, too. 
Genesis chapter 16. So this is just shortly after. I mean, God had said the child's going to come from your body, all right? Uh, he didn't really nail down that it wouldn't be from, uh, or that it would be from Sarah's body. I mean, it's like maybe that's left open a little bit. So in Genesis chapter 16, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You see that? What is she doing? Same thing that Abraham did. Uh, the reason I haven't had a child is because of the Lord. He blames God because she's not been patient. He's been preventing me from having children. So, so she says to Abraham, she says, so please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham, listen to the voice of Sarah. Does that remind you of anything that happened historically before that? Yeah, what about Adam listening to the, his voice of his wife when she was encouraging him to disobey God? That's kind of what's happening here, too. He's listening to her and uh, not being the leader. He, he should have known. I mean, God just talked with him shortly before that about how they were to wait. So verse 3 points out that they'd been in the land for about 10 years. That would put him at least 85. 75 when he left Mesopotamia. He's about 85, 86 now. Anyone know how old he was when Isaac was finally born? He was, any guesses? 100. Yeah, 100. We still, we're still 15 years out, right? Okay. So this is a little over uh, 85 is where he is here. Verse 4, he went into Hagar. That's what she wanted him to do, right? This was Sarah's idea. Go into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. You just see Hagar walking over to Sarah, feeling her tummy. And then she turns around. Look at here. Look at my tummy. See that? You don't have one. I do. You don't have his child. I do. No longer was it Miss Sarah. It was, hey, woman. Hey, woman. You're down here. I'm up here. So the servant began to look down her nose and despise her mistress. Things go awry, right? When we don't do things God's way, and especially out of impatience, things tend to go awry. I really like this next line, though. Every husband can really appreciate this, maybe. Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong done me be upon you. Don't you think Abraham say, woman, whose idea was this? She's saying, may God punish you, Abraham, for what happened here. It was her idea. I mean, he went along with it, but it was her idea, right? Which I think another point would be often when you get into these mixes, you begin to turn on each other as husband and wife. You get into these stressful situations, and often it causes a kind of a wedge, drives a wedge, even between a husband and a wife. All kinds of stuff happens when we don't simply trust God, wait on Him to accomplish His purposes. You know, this kind of impatience sometimes is seen in someone who, let's say, just really wants to get married. They just want to get married so bad. They've been praying to God for a spouse, and no one comes along. So they end up getting impatient, and they end up marrying someone that they knew they shouldn't have married. They just got impatient. They weren't waiting on the Lord. You see, so many times problems come up like that because we simply don't wait. Next one, Ethan. Now, here's the highlight. Here's the climax. God, what you told me to do is very confusing to me, but I still completely trust you, and I will do what you say. Have you ever felt confused by God's word? 
I think we probably all have. Have you ever found yourself kind of disagreeing, maybe, with God's way of doing things? I think we probably all have. The very important thing is this, though. I'm going to give you the word amen. You know what amen means? Anyone tell me, what does it mean? When you say amen, especially to God, what is that? So be it. Meaning what? Yes, let it be so. Whatever you've said, it may not hit me real right. It may not be something I actually even really want to do, but I'm submitted to your will. I will do what you said. I am submitted. That's what so be it means. We often use it to say, I, I, I agree with you. It's not really the way it was used. It, it means I submit to you. Okay? I submit to you. And that's the attitude we must have. So that's the attitude I think we find here. Look in Genesis 22. Let's turn over there real quick. And I know you're familiar with this, but this was the climax. And, and, and I mean, Abraham, and by the way, just before this, he didn't know another one of those lie things. He and Sarah were going down to Gerar in the south country. And again, she was still a really good-looking woman. And Abraham was afraid he'd get killed if she, people knew that he was married to her. So he had her lie again. And again, people got hurt because of it. So it's, that's that thing. It's that faith journey. Up, down, up, down. And then now we're going to go up again in a huge, huge way in Genesis 22. On this occasion, you remember God told Abraham to take his son. Isaac has been born now. The promised son, through whom all those three promises are to be fulfilled. The promised son has been born. He's a teenager now. And God says, take that son, your only son, and I want you to offer him up on Mount Moriah. Now, what impresses me about Abraham is, is Verse 3, right after God tells him it, here it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took off. No argument. No argument. You remember in Genesis 19 when God was about to destroy Sodom? What did Abraham do? He argued with God. Like, oh, oh God. That, this, he looked for some other way around God's purpose. There is no argument this time. He just does it. I mean, don't you know he's confused? Because God had said he was going to uh, fulfill these wonderful promises through Isaac. And then he says, Isaac, he says to Abraham, go, go kill and offer up your son. I mean, that has to be confusing, doesn't it? And I'm sure he must have felt that. However, here's a so be it attitude. So be it. I'm submitted to your will. And he takes off. In fact, they travel a pretty good distance. To me, this tests his faith. It would mine. He takes off with the son and with the servant and the, all the stuff for the offering. And three days, they're still going. He hasn't turned back. Three days. He has decided he's going to follow through with this. This is in uh, verse 4. And then he talks to the servant there, says for him to stay with the donkey. He was going to take Isaac up on the mountain. And he says, we will worship and we will return to you. Does that sound like faith? We're going to worship up there. Doesn't say anything about killing him. And then we're going to return to you down here. Now, was he lying? Did, did he really not think that? Think about, uh, here's where we, get, we need to understand that the Bible helps us understand the Bible. What was Abraham actually thinking? Because the New Testament tells us. When he said, we're going to come back to you after we go up there, what was Abraham thinking was going to happen on Mount Moriah? Do you remember? He's going to do what? Actually not. not I mean, that's what happened. But what was he thinking was going to happen? He was going to resurrect him. Right. Hebrews 11. He believed to fulfill the promises. God was first of all going to let him go through it and actually kill his son. 
but that God would then raise him from the dead. Boy, what incredible faith. Now, of course, what happened was, as he was had the, I tell you the part that would have killed me was where they get up there and, and uh, Isaac is saying, well, uh, you know, here's the wood and the fire, so where's the sacrifice? <laughs> I mean, that's where I would lose it right there because it was him. And then, of course, he does put him on the sacrifice, raises the knife, and an angel stays his hand. And then God says, now I know you have feared me. I know that you have feared me. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then he renews the promise to him, again, a very wonderful renewal of the promise that he had made to him. The next one. And by the way, through all that, again, what I want us to do is be able to to think about your own faith pilgrimage, because we're all on it. And what I really appreciate about the accounts we just looked at was Abraham is very human, isn't he? He's not a superman. And he's just, just as imperfect as we are. And that's what gives me an encouragement because God stayed with him through all of that stuff, the garbagey stuff, the lying and struggling with the faith and taking things into his own hands. He stayed faithful to God as he kept looking to God and God kept forgiving him and God kept helping him on his pilgrimage. So those are just very encouraging accounts to me. Now, in the New Testament, Growing in faith, I think, is broken down a little bit more. Here are things that are involved in this, and we're not going to go into this in detail. We will, I think, uh, hopefully later on. But growing in faith more specifically means growing in moral courage. You may remember in this passage, uh, Peter is saying, add to your faith these following things. Add to your faith moral courage. You know what that is. Uh, virtue, I think, is another word that's used in the King James. It simply means the courage of conviction. Do you have the courage to stand up for what you believe in? That's what that is the courage of conviction. Not just believing something, but being willing to stand up for it. Not be ugly, but stand up. Defend your faith. And then add to your moral courage. Knowledge doesn't help to have a lot of conviction, but you don't know what, but, but you're all on the wrong, you know, knowledge. You need to have knowledge to guide your moral courage. And then you need self-control to guide your knowledge because without self-control, you wouldn't follow through. And then perseverance is added to self-control That's to guarantee that what you're exercising self-control in, you'll keep doing it. Godliness is added to that, and then brotherly kindness and love. That is a breakdown. And when we think about and kind of evaluate our faith journey, think in terms of those characteristics. How are we doing in those characteristics? God wants us, in fact, in this passage, he says, if these things are, are in you and are growing, growing, God never demands perfection from us, but he does call for growing, growing in knowledge, progressing. That's what he calls for. And as we grow, his grace continues to forgive us and to strengthen us on that journey. The next one, Ethan. Okay, I want to end with this. I I found this really interesting. You guys remember William Bradford? Uh, Back in England, 1620, William Bradford was the one who actually came up with the term pilgrims for the people that were the separatists in the Church of England. Uh, They were being persecuted, and they actually migrated over to Holland for a while, uh, about 12 years, I believe it was. And uh, they it was no no persecution there, but it was a very, very worldly country. And so they said, let's go across the ocean. You know, let's go to America. And so they were pilgrims leaving for America, headed for America, and then living in America as pilgrims. The thing I want us to 
to notice here that was very encouraging to me, impressive is, oh, by the way, okay, uh, I was going to say this, our pilgrimage, this is from Second Peter, sorry, I'm getting ahead. Uh, from Second Peter, this is the goal, you know, we're, we have a pilgrimage to heaven. He says, in this way, as we grow in those qualities, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So we reach our destination as we do this faith journey. See, Peter's breaking down the faith journey for us. All right, next one here. So this is written by William Bradford, 1620, as they are leaving for, uh, for America. And by the way, they didn't have spell check back there. No, that's not it. This is old English. That's just the way they spelled it. <clears throat> so he says this. So they left. He's talking about the pilgrims that he was leading. They left that goodly and pleasant city, which had been their resting place near 12 years. But they knew that they were pilgrims, and they looked not much on these things, but lift up their eyes to ye heavens, their dearest country, and quieted their spirits. We sometimes think of the pilgrims like they had reached home when they got to America. But even with the pilgrims, they're referring to Hebrews 11. Even with the pilgrims, they recognized their home was not America. Their home was our home. It's that heavenly city. So they were on a journey, a journey of faith to the heavenly city. Let's evaluate our journey, our pilgrimage. How are we doing on that? Of course, the New Testament is written to help us on the journey. We are here in fellowship to help each other on the journey. There's so many resources God gives us to help us on that journey. All right, let's bow, please. Holy Father, we thank you so much for being being our God, Father, and being the one who has prepared a home for us. We are aliens and strangers and sojourners here, Father, and we are on a pilgrimage, a faith journey to see you in heaven. Father, walk with us. Strengthen us through your Holy Spirit. Help us to be faithful to you until death. Bless our congregation here, Father. Help us to just continue to grow in our relationship with you. Help us to always seek to be the kind of echo of you in this community that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name.